Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay local news to keep you rooted. One day in February of 1990, about 100 protesters gathered at Pier 96 in San Francisco's Bayview neighborhood. They came to stop precious cargo from moving through the San Francisco ports. Coffee beans from El Salvador. For the activists, those coffee beans were the money-making engine behind a brutal civil war going on in El Salvador. And if San Francisco's big coffee companies were buying up those beans, they thought, they were effectively funding a civil war, too. They argue that El Salvador's $400 million worth of annual uh, coffee exports mainly benefited a handful of families in El Salvador, which was in turn financing the uh, military atrocities against the local civilians there. Despite the Bay Area's iconic history of activism, the history of Salvadorians and port workers throughout the 80s and 90s is a lesser known story. So today, we're going to talk with reporter Sebastian Mino Buccelli about how these efforts by Bay Area activists would eventually help end a war. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night 
knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. So I spoke with Felix. Felix Curi. Uh, He's a retired lecturer who taught mental health classes at Estes State for 30 years in Latino Latina Studies Department. He was born in San Francisco, but went back to El Salvador. And it was during that time that there was this repression going on because of a military dictatorship that had been ongoing since the 1930s. In 1932, right, there were about 30,000 people that were killed. He tells me that, you know, the repression was so bad that if you were from a different class, you couldn't walk on a certain street without getting harassed by the military or the police. We understood and, and we knew that the military controlled the state and behind them, they were curing the right of the oligarchs They controlled absolutely uh, everything. He went through all of this, basically, and um, came to a time where he went back to the United States. So he was here in the United States as a student. He was going to school in San Francisco, um, but he was also very much aware of what was happening in El Salvador. How did he describe what it was like to be a student during that time? And what were some of the things that were like on his mind? So he and other Salvadorans were following the news back home. They were constantly checking to see if something had happened, if their family members were okay. This is a time period where, you know, if you spoke out against the government, you disappeared. What it was really important for many of us of my generation is the massacre of 1975 in El Salvador of university students. And that's how we began to uh, organize. And and we met, uh, you know, with other compañeros and and called some Salvadorians and decided that we needed to do that. Even got to the point where they (laughs) even occupied the Salvadoran consulate here in San Francisco um, just to raise awareness about what was going on. To stop the war, to stop the, uh, the repression. And was there a moment in particular where he was like, whoa, this is really, really bad? That was really the assassination of Monsignor Oscar Romero. He was an archbishop in El Salvador. And he was the spiritual advisor of my school. And I would see him all the time when I was in, in, in San Miguel. And so I would go to confession to him and all of that. He was telling me all of this in his living room where there was a, a portrait of Archbishop Romero. You know, Archbishop Romero began to, to talk about what was happening. Y ante una orden de matar que de un hombre, debe de prevalecer la ley de Dios que dice no matar. 
the archbishop was assassinated during a homily. He's denouncing the government and the repression that uh, someone went up and assassinated the archbishop. The murderer of the, of the bishop gave a signal for many of us that no one would be saved. I was spoke to him on the day that the anniversary had happened where he was assassinated. And so it was this like heavy moment for both of us where I'm like, I'm sorry we're going we're reliving through this trauma. Um, mm. Other Salvadorans can tell you this that it was very detrimental to to them. And it also was a moment that sort of began to kick off what would become a civil war in El Salvador, right? Yeah. All of us began to say, what do we do? You know, what do we do? We have to go beyond working with Salvadorians to develop a a movement. Felix Curi joined other like-minded people to form the East Bay Interfaith Task Force on El Salvador. In November of 1980, this group teamed up with port workers to stop the U.S. government from shipping weapons and tanks from the port of Oakland. This action spread up and down the West Coast. This blockade also set the stage for another protest action that tried to hit the Salvadorian government where it would hurt the most, its coffee industry, which at the time was really important to San Francisco too. Here in San Francisco, you had the big three coffee companies, along with Hills Brothers and MJB, which was founded in San Francisco in the late 19th century. A lot of coffee that was coming from Latin America was being offloaded in San Francisco or, you know, in the Bay Area. From here, it would just go on to the East Coast, to Southwest, etc. So it was a big deal in San Francisco, but how big of a deal was coffee for a country like El Salvador at the time? Like, what was the connection that people were making between coffee and the war. So like a way that El Salvador was able to generate income around this time was that the country itself became a monoculture of coffee. The people who were benefiting from this, they were called the 14 families. There were these rich landowners, but they also had their hand in uh, politics and also the military. Mm. So we could also say that they're oligarchs. By just funding coffee, you are also helping the Salvadoran government and military regime. So that's like one thing to keep in mind, like when people were trying to target Salvadoran coffee, it was because they wanted to hurt the pockets of the 14 families. One of the most important groups that led these coffee protests was called Neighbor to Neighbor. And it was led by a labor organizer from San Francisco named Fred Ross Jr. Their goal was to stop US aid to Nicaragua and El Salvador. And they had members all over the country. How do these activists begin to impact the coffee industry? Like, what did that look like exactly for these activists in the Bay Area? So it really began with, like, TV spots. Your tax dollars are putting America into the red. The red of El Salvador. Four billion dollars in ten years. Or they were just trying to raise awareness that 
as Americans, we should stop drinking coffee that comes from El Salvador. Those ads never really got to air because they were considered too violent. WMTW is not alone. No network affiliate in the Portland area will run the ad. They show just brutal images from the war. They show like a coffee cup that has blood spilling out of it. And so um, that was one of the ways that they were trying to do this. So neighbor to neighbor began organizing, but things I know really picked up in 1990. Can you tell me about what happened in 1990? Around 60% of Salvadoran coffee harvest were being shipped to the United States. And it was, at that time, it was like the biggest buyer of the market. And what happened was you had a little war going on down there. Monica Trobitz is a historian and author of Bay Area Coffee. And what they wanted uh, the, uh, the dock workers to do was not unload any ship, any freighter coming in from El Salvador carrying all these coffee beans. Just flat out don't do it. And one fine day in February of 1990, one of those freighters sails in with 34 tons of Salvadorian coffee beans. That is a lot of coffee beans. They set up picket lines to stop um, Salvadoran coffee. And it is met by neighbor-to-neighbor protesters, about 100 of them, marching back and forth uh, along the uh, dock. Longshoremen, they did not want to cross this picket line. So they also joined in on the effort to stop the offloading of um, Salvadoran coffee. The freighter was not being unloaded. So the captain decided to move on. They were able to stop this cargo ship from undocking all over the West Coast. Sailed up to Vancouver. Now you're in Canada. Met the same kind of resistance. Went down to Seattle. Same thing happened. Headed down to Long Beach. Exact same thing happened. The captain of the ship, the Buenaventura, said, we're going to have to just go back home. We can't dock anywhere and offload our coffee. So in the end, this freighter and every one of those beans ended up going back to El Salvador. So I know this protest spread from San Francisco up and down the West Coast. How long did it ultimately last? This boycott lasted two years. While it was going on, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted to boycott Salvadoran coffee beans. The California state legislature formally protested human rights violation against civilians by the Salvadoran military. Neighbor neighbor really did their job. And how about uh, El Salvador? I mean, what, what impact did these protests end up having there? A series of events where you had a grandson from the Gamble family, from Procter & Gamble, Folgers, by this point, was owned by Procter & Gamble. They were trying to raise awareness that, you know, we got to stop buying coffee from El Salvador. We got to do something. We can't continue on with this uh, boycott. A fear of a boycott happening to a company, in essence, is enough to scare the company to just follow through with the the message that people want. Procter & Gamble, um, Nestle, and Kraft took out ads in the Salvadoran newspaper urging the government to negotiate a peace settlement. And so when did a peace settlement ultimately happen? 
So it happened between the, like New Year's Eve of 1991, 1992, when it was formally signed. Um, two months later, neighbor neighbors saw that this was a win, and they just stopped the boycott. The story is really cool <laughs> and like amazing to see just such a like cross section of people coming together in this effort that really originated here in the Bay Area and then had such a big impact in another country. I initially read this book on Bay Area history and coffee. And one thing I really loved about it was like this, this solidarity to come together. You have, you know, people who are being displaced from the country because of war, they're coming together to help others in their time of need. You have a, a collaboration between two unions. They want to help each other. And then also hearing from the people and what they were going through. Like these are real people telling me what they were feeling back in the 80s and the early 90s. And um, I really wanted to tell their story so it's more reflected in the history that we know of it today. Yeah, and I I was just thinking too, I mean, I grew up here in the Bay Area and we are known for like these really cool and amazing just moments uh, in our history and of activism. But this is like not quite a story that I was actually aware of. And I, I wonder if like it was like an overlooked sort of part of our history of activism here. I didn't grow up here in the Bay and I've heard about these, like you said, like grand stories of, of activism. I really wish that this was a part of that too. Yeah. And I guess it is that yeah. you're reporting on it. Well, uh, Sebastian, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. It was really fun talking with you. Thanks for having me on the Bay. It was great speaking with you. That was Sebastian Mino Buccelli, a reporter for KQED. This conversation with Sebastian was cut down and edited by our senior editor, Alan Montesilio. Producer Maria Esquinka pitched this episode, scored it, and added all the tape. Extra production support from me. Shout out to the rest of the podcast squad here at KQED. That's Jen Chien, director of podcasts, Katie Springer, podcast operations manager. Audience engagement support from Cesar Saldana and Holly Kernan is our chief content officer. The Bay is a production of member-supported, people-powered KQED. I'm Erica Cruz-Guevara. Talk to you next week. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Happy reading! 
Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S.